say a word now that I guarantee in some here will bring up very strong emotions. It's a word that really we didn't know about a few years ago, but now it's, when, when it comes up, it does bring up strong emotions. And the word is party gate. Party gate. If I say that to some, some of you will be riled and angry. Others of you might be thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll tell you in a moment. But what is it? Well, in case you missed it, during the lockdown, uh, you hopefully will remember that. That happened three, four, nearly four years ago now. Uh, families, we were told, weren't we, to stay away from our families and friends. We had to isolate from other people because the laws were coming from Downing Street and they were telling us what to do. The problem was, it emerged uh, years later, that those making the rules were living in a way which was inconsistent with those rules. So they were having parties and celebrations when we were told not to. And when we hear that word, it riles us up because we think that's not fair. You know, there's inconsistencies there and it's tough to, for us to hear it. And there's inconsistencies that are really clear. But what I want us to think this morning is not just to point the finger at Downing Street and not to make a political point, but is this. There are inconsistencies in every one of our lives. There's contradictions that go on. There's a gap between what we believe and say we believe and the reality of our daily lives. And maybe you're aware of that in your life, maybe not. Maybe outwardly things can appear okay, but sometimes pressures come along and we do something or we say something and we think, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And in those moments we see there's an inconsistency between what we know to be true about Jesus and about the Bible and how we live that out. See, the reality is that if you're a Christian this morning, there are two things that we need to keep in tension. You are a loved child of God, but at the same time you are a, a sinner. John Calvin, the theologian, said, we are partly unbelievers until we die. Interesting thing, isn't it? We're partly unbelievers until we die. What does that mean? Well, there will be sin that dwells within us until, as we've been singing out this morning, we'll be with Jesus forever. Until we die, there'll be a struggle, a battle going on in our hearts and in our lives. And so when things happen, that we go, how did I do that? We need to remember, well, of course we will. We're failures, we're sinners. There are these inconsistencies. And um, one illustration I read of of this this week um, kind of helped me to picture it. Apparently during the building of the interstate, the road in America, Interstate 79, which went from Pittsburgh to Lake Erie, uh, or Erie, I'm not sure you say that, uh, one stretch of that road wasn't finished for a long, long time. And the reason was that they had to cross over a swamp. Uh, So they kept putting down these pilings and they thought they'd got to the bedrock, but then the pilings would keep sinking, keep going lower down. So it took ages and ages because they had to drill deeper and deeper and deeper than they realised until they got right down to the bedrock. Well, in the same way, you know, we can have these moments where we understand something about who God is. Maybe we're amazed at his grace and his love and we're just overwhelmed by God's spirit bringing those truths to our lives and our hearts. And we think, I've got it. I will never forget this moment. I will always remember God's love for me. I'll always remember what he's done for me. But then a few weeks later, our hearts grow a bit colder and we realise it needs to go in deeper. It hasn't really hit the bottom yet. I need to drill the truth of God's grace and his love towards me deeper to the bedrock of our heart. And in one sense, when we come to Jonah 4, We see there these glaring inconsistencies in Jonah's life. And we're not here this morning just to say, look how bad Jonah was, but to say, let's look at the mirror and see, well, let's see these inconsistencies that could be in my life as well. 
And as we do that, we pray that God's grace would help and by his kindness, he would drill deeper into our hearts this morning to experience more of his love and his kindness as he warns us about these inconsistencies. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been put off by how Christians have behaved in your life and they have just upset you or they've done things that just don't seem to add up with what they say they believe. Well, I hope you can see this morning, we are not saying that we're perfect. We are not saying that we've got it all together. It's the opposite. We're struggling, but we have our eyes on a perfect saviour. We're not the finished product. And I hope as we look at this this morning, hopefully you'll be able to see that and what that looks like as Christians battle uh, to be more consistent with what we say we believe. So this morning, I think in this chapter, we're going to look at four tests that expose in our lives some inconsistencies that can be there. Okay, four tests to expose these contradictions that can be in our lives. The first is this. Let's look at the knowledge test, the knowledge test in verses 1 and 2. Now, last week was an amazing passage, wasn't it? Jonah chapter 3. Jonah speaks this terrible sermon. Uh, He's kind of doing it because God has told him to. He said, I better share this message. He preaches this message of judgment with no hope. And then Nineveh, all of a sudden, they all turn and they say, maybe God will show us mercy if we turn to him. They repent. They turn uh, to God. And God shows wonderful mercy and grace. And we see this life change, this amazing moment in Nineveh where God does this amazing thing. But how does Jonah respond? Look at verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. See, Jonah here, is, he is furious. He's angry. Why is he angry? Because God is so kind and merciful and he knew that God would forgive and he didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites, the Assyrians. It infuriated him. Now, there could be lots of reasons behind that. One of them is because he said, I preach judgment and if you don't judge, I'm going to look like the liar. It could be that he's just, he just doesn't like the Assyrians and he's saying, I don't want them to experience your, your kindness and grace because of their violence, because of how they live, because of how they're my enemies. Whatever it is, he did not want them to experience the grace of God. The very grace, which is the only reason he's still alive, because he was saved by God in chapter 2, now infuriated him as he looked out on the people around him. And did you notice in verse 2, Jonah there is quoted in Exodus 34. It's one of God's catchphrases throughout the Bible. We see this coming up time and time again in the Old Testament. What is, who is God and what is he like? He is gracious. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. As we see that coming up in the Bible, it's times where God, we pause and we think, wow, look how great God is. As I said, it's like a catchphrase coming up throughout the Old Testament. But here, for the only time, we see it's used as a complaint. God, you are this, and I'm not happy about it. Jonah knew the truth about God's character, what he was like. like he'd even experienced the truth that he was saying, And yet, there was a disconnect with his heart. And yet, it hadn't touched, uh, it hadn't gone deep enough. It needed to go deeper into his heart. And I think as we pause there, isn't that a warning to each one of us this morning? We can read all the right books. We can listen to all the right teaching. We can recite all the right verses. We can argue well with those who disagree with us. But if it hasn't affected our life and our heart, then it's worthless. 
As um, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, remember, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We can read about the glories of God's grace. We can know that truth. We can share that with others. And yet, if we don't have that love, if it hasn't touched our heart, if if it hasn't changed our life, then it shows, doesn't it, there's inconsistencies. Doesn't that show something of the deceitfulness of our heart as well? How we can know about the truth of God, his love and his mercy and his kindness, and yet our hearts can be cold. This morning, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to say, Lord, help me. That I can say those things and not be touched. That I can say those things in my life not to uh, be changed. So is the knowledge of God, your, the truths you know about God, and your life in line? Is your theology, what you know about God, is it alive or is it dead? Now, maybe this morning, just as a test for that, we could write down some things that we know about God, about the gospel, maybe. What do we know about the gospel to be true? Well, we could say this. We could say, well, God loves me. We could say, God, he saved me, you know? He's died, Jesus died in my place. I'm rescued. I'm forgiven. I'm going to be with him forever. And we can write those things down as kind of a, a fact sheet. You know, this is what's true of the gospel. But when we say it, it can just mean nothing to us. Just leave us cold. This morning, let's pray that we see the context of where we've been so that those truths can actually uh, thrill us again. Just about the context and the coldness of truth and, and how it can, that can be. There's a great illustration I heard uh, that Dale Ralph Davis gave, gave of this. Um, the shorter catechism, you know, the question and answers that were uh, written a while back now and that, that helped kind of sum up um, loads of theology. One of the questions, question 37, is this. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And so the question, that's the question, what benefits do many have at death? If they trust in Jesus, the answer is this. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united in Christ, rest in their graves till the resurrection. And we think of that, great. That's true for a Christian. But Dale Ralph Davis said this story. He said, John Rabbi Duncan, who was a preacher in the 1800s, his wife died, and he had to go and view her body. And so as he stood over her lifeless body, he didn't say anything except to repeat the words of the catechism. And he repeated it with this thrilling solemnity. So let me read the answer again in a different context. What benefits do believers receive from Christ's death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies being still united to Christ, rest, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Do you see there's a difference between a coldness of knowing some truths and then seeing it in the context of, wow, this is what it means. What does it mean this morning for you to be a Christian? God loves you. He's accepted you in Christ. He has saved you and you are safe with him. He's died in your place. You are rescued. You are going to be with him forever. And that is true. And that is glorious. And we deserve none of it. Let's see the context of the theology of the truth. And let the knowledge not just be, yeah, I agree with that. But let it affect our hearts. That's the first test, is the knowledge test this morning. Are we just letting our brains grow bigger? Or are we praying, Lord, I want to know it in my heart? The knowledge test. The second test we see in this passage is the kingdom test. 
Jonah here is having, as we call in Welsh, a pudi. Uh, do you use that word, a pudi, having a pout, having a tantrum, having a sulk? Now, why do we, we still have them as adults, it's not just toddlers that have them, is it? Why do we have pudis? Why do we storm off? Why do we get angry? Well, often we get it because we don't get our own way. We don't get our own way. So he's angry, verse 3, what do we see? Jonah says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Why is Jonah so angry? He's angry because Nineveh, he thought, deserved to be judged because of their horrendous um, life and their violence and what they did, uh, as we've mentioned in previous weeks as well. But God showed them grace and he was furious. So verse 5, Jonah builds a booth. He builds himself a tent um, so he could watch what was going to become of the city. Maybe he was hoping he was going to see it being destroyed. He was waiting for the fire and the brimstone to come. This is it. He's got a good vantage point. He's going to see it happening. But it doesn't get destroyed because they turn to God. And God wants to show him, as Jonah's sitting there, he wants to show him some of these inconsistencies in his life. Lovingly uh, show him um, Jonah, there's some issues you've got to deal with here. So God, what does he do? Verse 6, he appoints a plant to come and, and grow over Jonah. And Jonah loves this plant. This plant brings him joy. The Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He was full of joy. This plant brought him joy. Uh, and then what happens? God sends a worm. He appoints a worm to eat the plant. And then the plant is taken away and Jonah is furious again. See, Jonah knows what he wants. He wants Nineveh to be destroyed. He wants to sit there in his comfort. And God does neither. And Jonah pouts. He has his poody. Why? Because he doesn't get what he wants. He's not in control of the situation. He wants to be in control and he's not. And these things come in and they remind him. No, and that's something that we all fall for, isn't it? Don't we fall for that delusion, that lie, that I am in control of my life? If I make that, this decision, this will happen. If I do this, I can do this. And this delusion is that we are the kings and queens of our own worlds. And so often, things come into our life that remind us that's not the case. And our response is, we get angry. Why is it that we find traffic jams so hard? Why can't you just get out of my way? Why can't this just be my road? You know, I want to get there this time. Why? Why doesn't everybody just listen to what we want and what we want to do? Why are queues so frustrating? Why, why are things, when things come in that we didn't expect, we just find it so hard? Because we've fallen for the lie, for the delusion that we are the boss, so that we're kings and queens, and we're not. And we were never meant to be. It shows us that we're limited. And Jonah here was telling the king of the universe, you've got this wrong. You've got it wrong, God. Now, seeing it like that, it's arrogant, isn't it? But don't we do the same? We're so close to Jonah. God, you've got this wrong. You should have done this. The reminder this morning is this kingdom test is the reminder that we're not the Lord of our universe. That place is reserved only for God and God alone. And actually, when we remember that, our lives are designed for us to submit to him, to live beneath his lordship, 
It's too much for us. When we put ourselves up as lords, that's when our lives become full of anxiety and worry because we're trying to control everything and we can't because only God can. He's the one who loves us and cares for us and he wants to, us this morning to submit to him again and say, God, I'm handing it over to you. Forgive me for how I've tried to run my own life. So this morning, let's submit again. Let's bow in our hearts to the king and say, Lord, it's over to you. I can't do it. That's the kingdom test we see here, just exposing these inconsistencies in our lives. So the knowledge test, the kingdom test. The third thing is the joy test. So God wants to expose and show Jonah lovingly what his heart is. And so he gives him this object lesson. As Jonah's there sitting, waiting for the best view of Nineveh to be judged, he's sitting in this tent and God appointed the plant. Now, it's the same word we remember that God did, did with the fish. He appointed a fish to come. And then we see that word coming up again, that he appointed a worm. Just God's control. He's in control of both you know, the biggest uh, fish you can think of and the smallest kind of worm. He's in control of it all. He's the Lord over everything. But the result of this plant was Jonah was there in his comfort and he was exceedingly glad. The only time we see Jonah, the grumpy prophet, the only time he's happy is when this plant comes along. But then God takes it away. Verse 7, God appointed a worm to attack the plant that it withers and Jonah's devastated. His joy is ripped away. In verse 8, it's better for me to live than to die again. He's just saying, I, I don't want to go on. I just don't want to be a prophet anymore. Do you notice the happiest we've seen Jonah in all the book is here? And what makes him happy? It's not that a city repents. It's not so much that he's saved and his life is saved from, uh, from drowning. It's when a plant comes up and covers him. And so the challenge for us as we kind of think about this joy test this morning is what is it that really gets us excited what is it that really fills us with joy you know it's really god is so kind to us isn't he He gives us so many things so many things that are good gifts for us to enjoy and we're supposed to enjoy them he wants us to enjoy them with with him but so often we get so excited about things that we forget about god and so we enjoy the gifts and we forget the giver. And we don't get excited about him, we get excited about what he gives us. And the reminder that, to us this morning is, if the gifts are so good, just imagine how much greater the giver is. What is it that gets us excited? What is it that we get most excited about? Thinking as we come up to Christmas, are we more excited about Christmas than about actually what, who Jesus is? There's lo- a lovely things about Christmas for us to enjoy, isn't there? But let's remember that we get to worship and enjoy that Jesus has come to save us and guarantee um, our salvation for us. He's come to do that. What is it that fills us with joy? What is it that that fills our our, um, excitement? What is it that gets us up? What gets us out of bed? And as we see that, I think we can probably see in each one of our hearts ways in which our joy is often not found in Jesus, but is found elsewhere. As you think of um, kind of giving somebody a gift at a Christmas morning or birthdays. If, if the focus of that gift is from the person receiving is only the gift and they ignore the giver, it's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? Because the giver wants that person to enjoy, enjoy it. I want you to enjoy it because it's from me. In the same way this morning, let's remember God is the giver of good gifts. They're signposts to him. And we're supposed to thank him, enjoy him. Now this morning, what is it that thrills our hearts? As one person put it, little souls make little pleasures big. 
but big souls make little pleasures small. The bigger our soul, the bigger we are thrilled with who Jesus is and what he's like, that's when we can be satisfied in him. But if our souls are shrinked up and small, then little joys will, will seem bigger. Let's pray this morning for big hearts to see the joy of Christ, to enjoy who he is and his greatness, so that the gifts he gives us fit into place, and that we don't live for them, but we live for him. What gives us joy this morning? That's the joy test. So we've looked at the knowledge test, the kingdom test, the joy test. The last thing is this, the love test, the love test. Now, God asks a question in such a wise way. Now, sometimes questions can expose and can get to the heart of things in a way that nothing else can. So Jonah is furious about a couple of things here, isn't he? What does God's, what's his question in verse four? The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, should you really be angry about this? And then when the plant dies, again, he says in verse nine, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? As we go on and read verses 10 and 11, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their left hand from their right, and also much cattle. He's saying, Jonah, you're getting upset about a plant. You're getting angry about a plant. What about the 120,000 people down there you're looking at? Can you see here, Jonah, there's a problem with your love. You're loving something more than something else, and it's not right. It's not right. Now, before moving on any further, isn't it good for us to ask that question to ourselves? Maybe you're angry in your life. Maybe you're hurting or bitter about something. Let God ask that question as a wise kind of counsellor this morning. And he says to us, why are you angry? Do you need to be angry? Is that worth getting angry about? So often we can be so kind of stuck in the moment and our worlds can seem so small and this one thing is getting us angry. And God is saying to us this morning, do you need to be angry? Let's, let that question search our hearts this morning and maybe God can expose and show us that actually there's, there's freedom from that anger and that bitterness in him. Are you seeing it in the light of his majesty and his greatness, his wisdom and his kindness, his justice and his grace? But... What can Jonah do? Well, again, we realise we're a bit closer to Jonah in this moment than we realise, aren't we? Um, as one uh, writer, I think it's Paul Tripp put it in, um, when he speaks about Jonah, he says this, are there a group of people that you would rather see judged than saved? We can be a lot like Jonah, can't we? Is there somebody you think, oh, I don't want them to be a Christian? Or if they came into church, you'd feel really uncomfortable, you think, well, they shouldn't be here. You see the danger? We can be a lot like Jonah. We can get excited about the wrong things and not love those who are lost. As we look around our valley, our heart should be aching for people of my stake, for everybody. There but for the grace of God. We can't look down on anyone. If he saved us, it's by his grace and he can do that for others as well. For Jonah to change, it's going to have to be sacrifice here, isn't it? Self-sacrifice. He's going to have to say no to what he wants and yes to what God wants. And so this morning, as we ask that question of the love test, as it were, what is it and who is it that we're loving? Are we loving and do we have eyes to see as God does the lost? Or are we loving our comfort and, and where we are more? 
See, these are challenging words, aren't they? And as we finish the kind of the book of Jonah, as I said, it'd been really nice to finish Jonah in Jonah 3, where there's like kind of this revival. It's like, oh, great, you know, happily ever after. But no, we, we're exposed to Jonah's contradictions. The encouragement is that it was probably Jonah that wrote this. He wants us to see this, wants us to learn from it with him. But again, we're reminded, aren't we, through his life of, um, of these inconsistencies. But notice, God doesn't give up on Jonah. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you, as we look at these contradictions, you think, well, I am a bundle of contradictions. I'm just a mess. God hasn't given up on you. And he's brought you here this morning to lovingly show you. Can you see? Can you see how this needs to change? Can you see how that's not right? And he's not leaving you where you are. And that is God's love and his kindness to you. It's uncomfortable. It's not nice. But as we thought about in other parts of Jonah, it's like the, 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 the wound of a surgeon when he comes in and wants to cut out what's dangerous and what's unhelpful. So what is God showing us this morning? What is he bringing up in your life that's inconsistent, that's not holding together? Situations that might be painful that God has brought in, but he's brought that in and he's showing you things about your heart and life that need to change. Well, there's only one place we can go to finish the series in Jonah. And Jesus himself told us that he's the greater Jonah. And there's so many ways in this city that we see Jesus is so much better. And when we feel like a bundle of contradictions and when we feel, God, I am a mess, what are you gonna do with me? And maybe we feel like giving up now. You think, well, where do I start? Remember the greater Jonah. Remember Jesus. See, Jonah sits outside the city that he turned, he turned to look at it and he hated it. What do we see of the greater Jonah? Well, Jesus went outside a city that hated him and he didn't condemn it. He prayed for it and he wept over it. Jonah was outside the city waiting for judgment, but Jesus himself was, was dragged out. He was hurled out of the city to face our judgment. G- Jonah was sitting outside the city saying, my will be done. My will be done. But Jesus willingly went out the city because he'd already said and prayed, not my will be done, but yours. And Jesus did that for self-righteous, bundles of contradictions like me and you. He loves you that much. Keep looking to the perfect Jonah, the perfect prophet who didn't run, the perfect prophet who stayed. Keep looking there until as we think on his love for us, our hearts melt. And we are amazed that he would bother with us. And then the contradictions come apart. Then we start to say, you know, the knowledge of Jesus can't stay in my head when he's done that for me, who failed him so much that he loves me. Then it goes to our heart. How do we submit to a king? When, but when we see what he's done for us, then our hearts say, yes, I want to serve him. The king who gave his life for me. How do we find joy in him that is everlasting? We remember what he's done for us and how he, the greater Jonah, did all of that in the gospel for us. How do we love sacrificially when we see he has given his life sacrificially for us? We look on the cross, we look on Jesus until our contradictions kind of and the bundle of them are pulled apart. And we pray that this grace goes down deeper again this morning, deeper and deeper. And you know, for the rest of our lives, we'll need to go deeper. 
because we are going to be in part unbelievers till we die. We need the grace to go deeper to get down to the bedrock. And so every week, we will keep singing about it. We will keep looking to Jesus. We'll keep trusting in him and encouraging one another to keep our eyes on him. Now, how did Jonah respond? If there was a chapter five, what would we see? Well, we don't know, do we? We don't know how Jonah responds. And it reminds us a lot, and you see a lot of parallels here with the, um, the prodigal son and the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? Uh, the younger brother ran away, the older brother stayed. And the older brother said, I've done all this for you. And then he was left outside at the end of the parable. We don't know if he comes in. In the same sense, Jonah here, we're not sure. What does he do? But as I mentioned earlier, the encouragement is that Jonah wrote the book. And could it be that Jonah wrote this chapter for us to see, please learn the lessons that I had to learn? There could be hope here that he learnt and he changed. But the truth is for us this morning, God is pursuing you. And we don't have to be uncertain about your response. He's saying, come back. Yes, you're full of contradictions. Yes, um, there's inconsistencies. But yes, we have a glorious saviour who never had any inconsistencies, who lived with perfect integrity. And he says, come to me now and I'll wash you clean. I can sort you out. So we come this morning to him and pray that his love will transform our hearts um, day by day, moment by moment. Let's spend a few moments just in silence as we reflect on that. I know there's a lot that we've heard that, that is uncomfortable and hard. But let's uh, listen to what our Saviour is saying to us. And I'll leave a few moments silence just for us to maybe repent or thank or dwell on what he's done for us.